Okay, so I'm reading from Luke chapter 12, 22 to 34. He said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? If then you are not able to do so small as a thing as that, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the fields, which, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not keep striving for what you are to eat and what you are to drink, and do not keep worrying. For it is the nations of the world that strive after all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, strive for his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves and do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Therefore I tell you, do not worry. Jesus, what do you mean? Don't worry about what exactly. Are all forms of worrying bad? What do I do with the fact that I can't seem to help my worrying? Sometimes I can't see worry approaching. It just happens to be upon me, clouding my perception and dulling my ability to navigate life well. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry. Jesus, what do you mean? Don't you know what I've been through? Can't you see what I'm going through? How could you suggest that I lay down worry? Therefore, I tell you, do not worry. Jesus, what do you mean? I wonder what happens for you when you hear passages like this. For me, as I mentioned before, there's a certain irony that's crept into my interaction with this call of Jesus because... As soon as I hear these words, I perceive a sense of growing worry over the fact that I'm not quite sure that it's actually possible to stop worrying. We're in a season of Lent, which is a very purposeful time in the church calendar, where we take intentional steps to, I guess, really focus on Jesus' life and his journey to the cross And it's a time often uh, marked by giving something up or laying something down for the period leading up to Easter in order to help us focus on what Jesus laid down so that we might know life. And today, what we're talking about, Jesus' call to lay down worry and pick up trust in its place. The prep for this message has been weighing heavily on me. I think partly because, I guess, of the potential damage that is done when messages like this are handled superficially, and partly because of how potentially powerful Jesus' words are 
in our lives, how potentially liberating they are. And a quick, ca- a quick caveat, if I can, before we jump right in. Whereas this call of Jesus speaks to laying down our filter of worry and picking up a filter of trust. It must be noted that this message is not directly addressing um, certain mental health issues that may require sustained support over a long term with a professional. And I just want to flag that this is not Jesus simply saying, just pray the worry and the anxiety and the depression away and all will be well. That's not to say it doesn't have something to contribute in that space. Of course it does, because as disciples of Jesus, this message plays a part in the whole. However, I just wanted to flag it up front. If you feel that you are in a space where you are journeying towards needing to take a very intentional journey of healing with a professional, and you'd like to reach out and make that connection with somebody, there are, hopefully there are people in this room that you trust that you might be able to reach out to. Um, feel very free to come speak with me or Ainsley or um, somebody on the Leadership Council um, and we can help connect some of those dots for you. So what is Jesus saying to his disciples in this passage? As we peel back the layers of this dialogue with his disciples, we start to see that Jesus is zeroing in with pinpoint accuracy on the part of our lives that have huge implications for both our heads and our hearts. Jesus is talking to his disciples about the relationship between control, worry, and trust. Now, for anyone who has seen ever movie, uh, any movie ever made about people travelling into space, they all kind of go the same way. At some point, something goes wrong and the systems and the processes and the equipment that the travellers need to stay in control of their circumstances, they're all obliterated and they're stuck. And without fail, in movies like this, there's a very tense silence that ensues. That was perfect. Yeah, anyway. The moment where the worry sets in, oh boy... We are not in control anymore. I think there will always be a market for movies that touch on that theme because it resounds with something in us, that feeling when you're no longer in control of any given situation, worried that you don't know how it's all going to play out. Perhaps it touches on a scary prospect that we don't feel in control of our own lives. And we want to be in control, we do. And when control is taken away from us, or in most cases it's just threatened, we worry. And rather than proceeding with two feet on the ground, we feel as though we're floating around in space with no real plan on how to get home. Our first layer to peel back in understanding what Jesus is talking about is to consider what Jesus has said to his disciples just before this don't worry spiel. Jesus is telling his disciples a parable about a rich fool who finds his peace and security in the things that he accumulates. He's able to reap 
bountiful harvests. He's able to store up his provisions to be relied upon for years. And now, in the rich man's own words, he can just eat, drink, and be merry. Yet Jesus tells us that very night, as he considers his future merriment, the rich fool's life is demanded of him. And Jesus paints the man as a fool. Because even though the rich man had embraced a vision of trust, he trusted in things that were far too small. It's from here that Jesus goes on to build his argument. He's compelling his disciples to have a far greater perspective. He challenges them. At the end of the day, what is it that you can truly control? Sure, you might want to control what you eat and what you will wear, but life is about so much more than these things. How about this? Can you even add a single hour to your life through your worrying, through your want to control things? I didn't think so. Yet there is one who does have control over such a simple thing as that. And this one, he provides for the least of his creation in these small and temporary matters that you are worrying about. How much more will he provide for you in those things? Therefore, do not strive for the smaller things. Strive for that which is so much more. Strive for the kingdom. Strive for the way of heaven to break into your everyday situations, your circumstances, your environments. Don't strive to build your own kingdom like the world strives. Strive to see the kingdom come because that is what is being built and that cannot be destroyed or taken away. And trust. Trust that as you build your true wealth in the kingdom, God knows what it is that you need along the way and he'll provide. Trust. Here lies the heart of what Jesus is saying. Remember who it is that feeds the birds of the air and clothes the grass of the field. The Father. Remember, your Father knows what you need. Remember, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Trust in that one. In Philippians, Paul pulls back the curtain of his life and shows us what it meant for him to know a father like this. And that's on our next little slide there. You just want to push that little button. For I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. As we know who it is we're trusting, the promises he has made, we can then start to think through what it looks like to lay worry down in situations that we cannot control. We start to perceive what it might look like to surrender ourselves to the fact that God knows what we need in any given situation and that he is present to lead us through those situations. We start to hope 
that the Father will have his will and his way, his kingdom, break into our circumstances that we cannot control. Jesus is encouraging his disciples, you're in the hands of the one who can truly deliver on the big things and the small things. Trust him. But what does it look like to facilitate a head and a heart of trust? What I'm saying, I know that you understand, but the hard part is what does it actually look like to facilitate a relationship of trust? One of the most wonderful practices that Israel had in their community was setting visual reminders of the things that God had done in their midst. For example, when the Israelites crossed over the Jordan, rather miraculously, they set up a pile of rocks as a monument to what God had done amongst them. We might just read that um, on the next slide. When the entire nation had finished crossing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Select twelve men from the people, one from each tribe, and command them. Take twelve stones from here, out in the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priests' feet stood, Carry them over with you and lay them down in the place where you camp tonight. Joshua summoned the 12 men from the Israelites whom he had appointed, one from each tribe. Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan, and each of you take up a stone on his shoulder, one for each of the tribes of the Israelites, so that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off in front of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crosses over the Jordan, the ward, uh, yeah, when it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to Israelite a memorial forever. I love that so much when your children ask in time to come what do those stones mean to you you tell them in order to preserve confidence trust and relationship with god israel were to intentionally mark out a physical representation of their journey with god so that they could always point to it and say you see Remember what he is like. See, do you remember when he took us across the Jordan? See, do you remember when he delivered us out of Egypt? Remember, this is what he is like. Remember that he is powerful. We were there. My dad was there. My grandfather was there. We experienced it. It happened. He is real. He is present. He is powerful. See, remember what he did. He made a way for us. He'll make a way for us again. He was with us then. He is with us now. Remember, he's the one we can trust. For us today, we need to seriously consider what it looks like to capture the mark of God's hand across the story of our lives. We need to intentionally pick up habits and practices that preserve the story because I'm fairly certain that for most of us here we can remember a time when God came through for us 
in a way that was so powerful and so perfect and so gracious. Most of us can probably remember a time of what it was like for our Heavenly Father to reach into the spaces where we were out of control and we know that it was Him who made a way when we could not. Most of us can probably remember a time where in our own way we fell to our knees in praise because we saw that our God is present. He's powerful and unbelievably gracious in the midst of our chaos. And it is that same God today who says, do not worry about the smaller things. Instead, trust that I am present and powerful to bring about the bigger things. And as I'm doing that, I know what you need right now. So trust me for those things. I know that I need to intentionally build my monument and my markers because I forget. In the midst of all the things that happen, the worry continues to creep in. It's incessant. It does not stop. I won't have enough. I don't know enough. I'm not good enough. These things have a way of creeping in and undermining my trust in the one who is ultimately in control. If I may overshare ever so briefly. I'm 35 years old. Now, I did not have an existential crisis on my 35th birthday. I had it on my 34th birthday. I remember, for some reason, the night before I turned 34, I was literally lying on my lounge room carpet, looking up at the ceiling for like an hour. And the thoughts that were swimming around in my head at the time, I wasn't expecting this. <laughs> it just happened. They sounded a lot like this. And before I go into it, I, I know that I'm not the oldest person in the room. I know that. But th this is just something that happened for me. <laughs> you haven't done enough. You haven't made enough. You're running out of time. You won't be enough. Time's up. And it was this profound moment of worry that I couldn't stop the feeling that time was skipping along and I could not slow it down because I had hoped that by this stage things might look like this or like that or like this. And I couldn't control the fact that time wouldn't give me enough time to get it all done. There's just this sense of worry that crept in because I want my life to count. I want to make an impact. And I was getting increasingly worried that I couldn't make anything happen. And yet, when I look back on my life, the hand of God's provision and his ability to make an impact in me and through me stands as a living testimony. There have been so many times when God has provided 
materially when it has seemed out of my control. There have been so many times when God has provided internally when that seemed so out of my control. I personally know a God who has been gracious and merciful and loving and gentle and powerful from when I was a child experiencing things that I couldn't control to the Dan today who still can't seem to control anything. I know that my God has been present and he has been working. Yet I need to continually pick up my tools from the journey. Because I don't know about you, but it's this ever-present toing and froing between Lord, I remember and I trust and I know to Lord, I'm all alone. Where are you? You're surely not here. Lord, I, I see you. I remember how you worked in this situation. And, and Lord, I don't understand. And how could you possibly? This is, this is the dialogue of relationship with God, what it looks like to navigate through life. And I need to tool up. I need to prepare myself for that journey in order to facilitate a relationship of trust. For me, it looks like these things. I encourage you that as I'm prattling on about my things, that you start to think, oh, what are my things that are helping me see the hand of God at work in my life? How am I building up a monument to point to that my God is with me? For me, it looks like needing to intentionally document my story. I've got too many notepads at home with lots and lots of thoughts about where I'm at and scheming for the future. I don't have a lot that talks about the past and I need to add that piece because that's when I'm in those moments that I need to reach back. I just know that I need that as a mechanism to help me. So that's one that I'm working on. It needs to look like intentionally shaping a life of prayer that is centered on thankfulness because it is very, very easy to get swept up in all that I continually, supposedly need. And I don't spend enough time in thankfulness. Thank you, Jesus for your presence in this situation, how you have raised up here and how you have put down over there across my life. And for me, it looks like investing time to get to know my God ever more deeply and my very surprising version of that because I didn't think that this is how it would play out. I really enjoy theological study because I'm just that cool. Um, and I just know that um, for me, in times of intentional study, that it has sharpened my focus and drawn me into a very, very relational aspect with Jesus. And I, I'm currently working out what does that need to look like as I continue to move forward. Because it's very easy to not be intentional. And so I'm working through that. I'm wondering what it is that you need to work through to set up these monuments.
But friends, the very, very good news is we have a continual marker of the nature of the God who is in your life, in our community and over this world. We're going to share in communion together rather deliberately because it is this ever-present marker that the nature of our God is the God who has laid down everything so that we might know life. It's this marker that says you are known and you are loved. And this is what my love looks like for you. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take communion together and we're going to be thankful. Thankful that it's in this God that we trust. It's in the God who lays down his life so that we might know life. He's the one who is in control.